You'll be pleased to know now uh, that you won't have to suffer through one more message of mine on suffering. Uh, and so Peter, as I get to chapter 5, Peter will leave the theme of suffering and we'll talk these next couple of weeks about leadership on chapter 5. But one more message uh, from Peter, from 1 Peter, and we'll talk today about suffering with one another for the glory of God. Suffering together for the glory of God. Peter has been teaching us how to live as a Christ follower in a society that does not value Christ. And so as Peter teaches us, he's always focusing on the theme of living today with a vision of heaven always before you. And Peter drives home two things. Uh, see, a young guy won't do that. Uh, uh, Peter drives home two themes repeatedly as we try to live today with a vision of heaven before us. Number one, remain holy. Number two, remain faithful. And do this because you know that Jesus is coming again. Peter focuses on advice for everyday life. Yet his central piece of advice is live today with your mind on eternity. And so chapter 4 begins with Peter teaching us that the best life, that's defined as a life that makes a difference in other people's lives, that the best life is best lived serving others for the glory of God. And chapter 4 continues, Peter teaches us that the enduring life, a life that does not fail Christ, is also best lived by learning to suffer for the glory of God. And so we pick it up with 1 Peter 4.12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian for following Christ, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Okay, here's our challenge. How do we interpret this text as it was written to a persecuted first century church while making it relevant to those of us who are living here today in America? We are in America, after all. We are not suffering brutally like they did. We're not being beheaded. We're not being fed to lions at a sporting event. There are several hundred thousand churches in America, and it is perfectly legal in our country for you to be converted to Jesus Christ and then to join one in worship there. Christians are not prevented in our country from owning their own businesses, from owning homes, from owning their cars, or even from taking a nice vacation once a year or more, which most of you, including pastors, do. So we certainly don't want to develop this paranoia 
that the government is out to get us. And let that end up robbing us of the joy of living in this country that allows us to express our freedom unlike any other country on the planet. But on the other hand, but on the other hand, Pastor Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, I read had an award from Princeton Theological Seminary revoked and taken back from him because he believes that the Bible does not allow for the ordination of women. TV personalities are attacked and people demand that they take their show off the network simply because they worship at churches that don't support gay marriage. Vice President Mike Pence is routinely mocked simply because he won't have dinner with another woman who's not his wife. And he says he does that because he got that rule from Billy Graham. It used to be called the Billy Graham rule because that's how he kept himself uh, free from moral scandal when he was in ministry. Now this increased hostility, increasing hostility in America toward those who follow Jesus Christ prompted one author, his name is Rod Dreher, to publish a book called The Benedict Option. The Benedict Option in which he advocates that the way forward may be found by looking back. Benedict was a 6th century monk. He was horrified by the moral chaos that enveloped his civilization after the fall of Rome. And Benedict concluded that the best thing that Christians could do was move out into the city, out of the city into these communes, if you will, these counter-cultural communes in which life would be lived according to principles and order and hospitality and prayer. And by the way, that's essentially what the Puritans and the pilgrims wanted when they came uh, to this country. So it's not like it's never been done before. Unless you think this is just some sort of extremist book, Russell Moore, who is the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, he reviews this book by saying, I'm more missionary than I am monastery. But he said, I am really recommend that all Christians read this book because there are warnings to heed and practices to follow. Carl Truman of Westminster Theological Seminary says, this is the book I am going to use to get thoughtful people in my congregation reading and discussing. It's going to be helpful in, to those in my congregation who live out there on the front lines. And so if you come here on Wednesday night, you know, the last two Wednesday nights, we have been talking about as we study Israel, uh, as they have just been planted into their promised land, we have been talking about as we fulfill the Great Commission, do we do that by infiltration or we do this by isolation? Which one do we follow? And we've been talking about the dangers of following both as we try to uh, carry out the Great Commission in reaching our society. So it's not so bad in America yet that we have to be paranoid. We don't. We can instill joy a great many blessings in our country, but only an ignorant Christian wouldn't be aware and wouldn't be concerned with the direction American society is taking toward Christ and toward his followers. Good news, Peter offers us some good advice. Peter can help us with this today. In this text on suffering, I see this outline. For the glory of God, Peter 
challenges us with an exhortation for thinking, a condition for suffering, and a foundation for enduring. Peter goes first in the verses 12 through 14. Peter goes first for our attitude as he challenges us with his exhortation for thinking. He begins by saying in verse 12, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. He says, don't act as though something strange were happening to you, like you've never been told this before, like you're hearing this for the first time. Don't be surprised when it happens to you as a Christ follower. Don't be surprised when you go out there to school, when you go out there to work, and somebody doesn't appreciate the Christ that you follow and is even hostile toward the Christ that you follow and his teachings. I've told you before, you can watch that movie, God is Not Dead, to get an example of what persecution like that looks like here in our country in America. Then he comes at us with a supernatural counterproposal. And I call this supernatural because, frankly, what Peter's about ready to tell us to do, you can't even understand, much less do, unless the supernatural spirit of God is living inside of you causing you to understand this and then enabling you to do this. Verse 13, Peter says, when this happens to you, and it will, he says, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. I'm like, what? Rejoice in suffering? Now really, who says when they get a spanking, thank you, sir, may I have another? Who does that? You know, uh, who do, what, what does this mean, rejoice in suffering? Well, now Peter tells us why we should rejoice when we suffer because we are following Jesus Christ. In verse 13, he says that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. In other words, that's another way of saying because God is glorified. You can rejoice when you suffer for the name of Jesus, Peter says, because God is glorified. Now we've seen this before in this book. If we handle suffering with the right attitude, then God uses that suffering to make us like Jesus Christ. And in that, meaning in our response to our trial. In that, God is glorified. That happens because in our response to suffering, the world then sees that Jesus is real to us. Jesus is real in our lives. Listen, they know what they do to you. When they're mean to you, when they're cruel to you, when they're condescending to you, you can be sure of one thing. They know what they're doing to you. And they have a certain expectation of how you are going to react back to them. They expect a counterattack, like Republicans and Democrats do with each other. Everybody expects a counterattack. They fully expect a counterattack because they know what they're doing. And when you don't give them that response, but instead take on the mantle of your Savior, Jesus Christ, the power of Christ is seen in your life 
And the witness for Jesus Christ is given by your example. Now let's pause because I'm talking about here what it means in everyday life when theology touches the street. I'm talking about what life looks like when it is lived with a mind that has been renewed in the gospel. Let's just not assume everybody understands the gospel and what that message is that is the foundation for living life every day that follows your acceptance of the gospel message. God created paradise and mankind to dwell in it in fellowship with him, enjoying one another. God created mankind to dwell in the garden and to rule over the earth as his stewards, his personal representatives, his personally appointed leaders over the earth. But mankind, meaning Adam and Eve in the garden, instead chose to rebel against God. Instead of living for God's glory, they chose to live for what pleased them. And their sin ruined paradise. And what they did brought death and disease and destruction that we watch on the news every single day of our lives. But just like Adam and Eve, you and I chose to sin. As soon as we were old enough to know the difference between right and wrong, we chose to do wrong. And our rebellion means we choose to live life our way, not God's way. God's word, the Bible says, our sin then alienates us from a holy God. In fact, God's word says we become enemies of God. Sin makes us enemies against God. And our sins against God bring God's condemnation because he is just and holy and a just judge of this world. And so God, who gets to make the rules because he's the creator, says in his word that all who die unforgiven of their sins against him will be banished away from him for all of eternity in a place that our Bible names as hell. That's what God the creator, the sovereign ruler of the universe, has ordained. In other words, God is saying this, how you feel about him right now is going to determine how he will feel about you for all of eternity. Here's the good news. Our God, who is the judge of all, is not a vindictive God. He is a loving God. We may have been born separated from him because of our sinful nature, but our loving God has made it possible for our sins to be forgiven and for us to be restored into his family the way he originally intended. And so God sent a sin bearer to pay the price for our sin. So sin could be forgiven. So sinners could be saved from the penalty of sin. God sent Jesus Christ to die for our sins, to shed his blood on that cruel cross as a substitute payment for the sins we have committed against our God. And God promises this, all who repent of sin, all who trust in Jesus Christ as their sin-bearing Savior, all who take the free gift of salvation, turning from sin and turning to God through faith in Jesus Christ, will, on the promise of God, be forgiven for all the sins you have ever committed, will, on the promise of God, be restored into the family of God, 
will, on the promise of God, be adopted into this, his family to the point where he declares you joint heirs with Jesus Christ himself. He would become your heavenly father. You would be adopted into his family. How good is that? Now, if you've never done this, then please make an appointment with me after the service so we can get together this week and talk about it. At least, let me give you this booklet on the real Jesus. It talks about who he is, why he came, and why it matters to you now and forever. Let's talk about it. But if you have done that, if Jesus is your Savior, then his spirit and dwelt you on the moment you genuinely got saved. His spirit then becomes your guide for living life. Spiritual things can now be understood by you because his spirit lives in you. And so in this exhortation to get you to think, in this exhortation to go after your attitude and, and, and talking about how you think about your suffering, he says that when you suffer for your Savior, you are actually partaking in your Savior's suffering for you. When you're suffering for his name's sake, you're actually partaking in his suffering for you. And when you do that, God then uses your suffering, our suffering, to make us like our Savior. And when we become like Jesus, God's purpose and our salvation is fulfilled. And God is glorified. And the gospel bears lasting fruit in us. And so knowing that God can be glorified in our suffering, Peter concludes then, we then can rejoice in our suffering. Echoing the words of Jesus himself on the Sermon on the Mount, Peter says, if you are insulted for the name of Jesus Christ, you are blessed. Why? Because God gets the glory in it. The spirit of glory in God rests upon you. And so, my fellow Christ followers, my friends, we must embrace the big truth that suffering with rejoicing now prepares us to be overjoyed when Jesus comes and his glory is revealed and all suffering is brought to an end. There is a God-given, gospel-centered purpose in all the suffering that you and I go through in everyday life. In God's spirit now, we must learn to think differently about suffering. Not to view suffering merely in the light of our own inconvenience, but in the light of God's glory. Next, Peter gives us a condition for suffering in verses 15 and 16. He says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. A meddler is someone who's always busy about everybody else's business but their own. Does it wow you a little bit like it does me that he throws a gossip in the same category as murderer? Okay, I'm just saying that's pretty heavy to me. This is a familiar theme in Peter's teaching. We've seen it before. Suffering for doing bad as a Christian is unacceptable. And whatever you get because you've done bad, you deserve. Suffering in the name of Christ for being a Christian Suffering in the name of Christ just for following Jesus. That's acceptable and blessed. Christians should be holy. And that's going to result in us living ethical, good lives before others when we go to work on Monday. We'll be the ethical ones. 
we're going to be the good ones. In other words, if we suffer, there should be no just cause for our suffering. Our suffering should be an injustice. Our suffering shouldn't be deserved. It should be something that we don't deserve. It should be something that we are never ashamed of, something that we know that Jesus will vindicate when he comes again. And this, my friends, is where I think your church comes in. This is where you come in for each other. This is where Christian parenting comes in. This is where Christian mentoring comes in. This is where Christian education for all ages comes into play. Because we must learn by God's grace and in the power of his spirit, we must learn a biblical world view on suffering. Every church ought to have a theology of suffering. Every church ought to occasionally teach a class on the theology of suffering like we're doing right now on one of our Sunday school classes. One of the key questions you can ask a pastor is, what is your theology of suffering? A church ought to be able to help you here, but we need a biblical worldview. From math in school to marriage and home, we got to see it spiritually. We have to see it the way God sees it in the Bible, not just the way that we've been raised Certainly not the way culture sees it. We have to have a biblical worldview. A little side note, I love the fact that the guy that you will be considering as your next pastor has a PhD in biblical worldview and apologetics. A relatively new major, a relatively new opportunity, but certainly a relevant one for the times in which we live. We all need to see life in this world biblically. And that includes our suffering. Peter says in verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Living in a way that does not bring shame on God, but rather brings him glory, that's the command. And here's the thing. You can't do it alone. There's none of you, including me, strong enough to live out this command, to live a life that brings God glory on your own. You can't do it alone. We need each other. We need to, each other to suffer together by praying for one another. We need to learn a biblical worldview together by studying together. We need to endure when life is hard simply by being together and being there for one another. We need each other. And what I'm saying, what Peter's saying is salvation is not just a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. It's a way of life following that profession that lives in a way that brings glory to God as our Savior did. Now look, a five-year-old can make a profession in Jesus Christ, and if they are sincere, they can receive Christ. But look, that's the beginning of it, not the end of it. Our job's not done when this child professes Jesus Christ. It's just beginning. I've used this illustration before. When you get your wings as a pilot, you are not an expert at flying. You just have figured out how to make the number of landings equal the number of takeoffs. Okay? Uh, you have just succeeded in managing to fly without killing yourself. You're a long way just because you're safe for solo. You're a long way from being ready to put others in your airplane and fly them around. Getting your wings is just the beginning. Getting saved is just the beginning. 
There's a lot of learning that has to occur after that. A lot of learning that has to occur after that. When we get saved, we begin a lifelong journey of discipleship to learn to live in a way that brings God glory in everything that we do. And every, that's what I love about the wilds. He used to make us recite the first ten, Corinthians 10, 31, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. They won't even feed you until you re, recite that verse. Okay, they get it. I mean, we all exist, and we, from children to adult, we need lifelong training to learn what it means to live a life that brings glory to God. We need it. We all need it. And we'll never outgrow that need. It's not enough to have the right attitude about suffering. God means for us to act on it. And to do that, we need each other's strength. And to have that, we have to commit to being here with each other and to growing together in God's word if we're going to have any hope of living God's truth. That's what membership is all about. It's about commitment to that. The command is to live righteously out there in society. And what Peter's saying is it's a group effort. It's a family effort. That's what we're all about as a church. Next, Peter speaks to us as a church in this text. He refers to the church as the household of God. And now he lays for us a foundation for enduring. Now get ready for some really hard words because they're sobering. Listen to what Peter says about enduring in our suffering. In verse 17, he says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, scarcely saved, what will be the outcome of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. What does that mean? The time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. I'm pretty sure I don't like the sound of that. What does that mean? For judgment to begin at the household of God. Well, my friends, sometime God is very, very serious. And he demands that we be serious back. So following Jesus is Sometimes it's just a little more than swinging on the swing set on the church playground on a bright sunny day and singing Jesus loves me. That's all well and good. But sometimes it's harder, more demanding than that. Enduring in our faith. That's what this whole sermon's about. That's what this whole book is about. Enduring to the end in our faith is something that God is deadly serious about. And that's what these hard verses are about. Now, let's remember, God's always thinking of the big picture. When you and I talk about salvation, it is important to us personally and individually because we want to go to heaven when we die. God is thinking of a much bigger picture than that. The God of the universe is concerned about his glory throughout the universe. And so when God saves us, he doesn't just look at you and say, oh, look, this is all about you. I'm going to save you so that you can go to Candyland when you die. That's what this is all about. No, God has a much bigger picture when he saves each one of us than that. He has a much bigger picture that we will join the redemption story. 
That's why he says when you get saved, you've just got a new job. You are now an ambassador of Jesus Christ himself. You're on mission. You have just been given a life mission to represent Jesus Christ in the society in which you live. In the promised land in which you dwell, you have been given the ambassadorship of Jesus Christ himself. And God says, if you will live it, you will bring him glory. And that's what he's about in each of our individual salvations. So when God makes a condition for living that we suffer only for doing right and never for doing wrong, then in the big picture, God is saying, how you live matters and you are accountable to me for how you live. That's what God is saying to us. And so our profession of faith in Christ puts the name of Jesus on trial in the lives that we live. Every day, every way, every word you speak, every action you take, in some way, big or small, puts the name of Jesus on trial if you are professing Jesus as your Savior. So let's talk about that in the context of suffering. In light of what you've heard, suffering for the big picture, for the glory of God, I want you to consider your suffering. Has your suffering in life made you bitter? Has your suffering in life made you sarcastic? Life not turning out the way you demand and you're mad about it? Your attitude is wrong. It's that simple. You're wrong, Peter says. And God doesn't like it. And God calls you to repent of it and change your focus off of you and back on to him. If you don't know how to do that, read the Psalms. Every day that you're suffering, read a Psalm a day and see if you can figure out how the psalmist goes from suffering to turning the view back on God. It's one of the best pieces of advice I can give you. When you're suffering, read a Psalm a day and watch how the psalmist teaches you how to change your focus back on God. If you don't do this, this is what causes people to fall away. You've seen it. Maybe you've done it. They fall away from church. They fall away from, uh, um, from the body of Christ. It happened to this church in history. It has happened in our church. You've seen it. It has happened to churches of all time. It's happened in your individual families. People fall away when their focus turns away from God and turns back onto self. And they convince themselves, I deserve to be bitter based on what has happened to me. I deserve to be bitter. And what happens is they fall away. And God says, judgment begins at the household of faith. Judgment is coming to the world one day, but it's going to begin with his people first. That attitude represents an insincere, non-genuine faith. Amos 3.2, God told Israel, you only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. And get this, Amos is prophesying during time of national optimism in Israel. Business is booming. Borders are expanding. Things are going good. But here's what's happening in Israel. Prosperity is everywhere, but below the surface, greed and injustice are festering and growing. And below the surface now, hypocrisy is finding root and genuine faith is giving way to hypocrisy. And Amos rises up to proclaim God's judgment 
against people, God's people. Why? Because they're not enduring in their faith. And God sees their insincere faith. Get this. This is powerful. God sees their insincere faith as a basket of rotting fruit. What a word picture. And Jesus would go on and teach that very lesson himself by walking up to a fruitless fig tree and killing it on the spot as a picture of how worthless a life of insincere faith is. And Amos says what Peter says, because you are my people and I am your God, I will judge you for your sins. Here Peter quotes Proverbs 11.31 in verse 17 and says, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? In other words, if God will judge his own house for insincere faith, how much more will he judge you have those who have no faith at all? And a similar threat of judgment against insincere worship that leads to a hypocritical life is found throughout the entire New Testament. And so that's what Peter is saying to us today. Suffering is one of the ways God purges sin from Christian living and brings us back to a sincere faith. Okay, we got to pay attention. That does not mean that you can conclude that everybody who is suffering is in sin. The book of Job says you can't do that. You cannot conclude that everybody who is suffering is in sin, but some are. And one of the ways that God purges sin is through suffering. And what's the good in that? If they are restored to the faith, then they join the ranks of those who endure in their faith to the end. And that's what matters to God. The whole book of Revelation is written about that. Those who endure until the end is what matters to God. And so the goal of suffering is to put our everyday minds into an eternal mindset. If it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? If the righteous one is scarcely saved, what will be the outcome of the ungodly and the sinner? And so as a foundational principle for God's people of all time, we are to submit ourselves to God by living holy. And if it's God's will for us to suffer for doing that, then we must surrender that to our faithful creator, our faithful God. Now, it means in our cultural context, we're to live honorably and that God will hold us accountable for it. And if in living honorably causes us to suffer, then surrendering that to God's glory will liberate us from our fear of suffering. It is prayer in which we surrender to God. And in that surrender, we find freedom from fear. And in that freedom, we can live hopeful lives of faith no matter what is happening around us. A hopeful faith that knows that whether I live or die, I am the Lord's. A hopeful faith that knows when Jesus is coming, all suffering will cease. A hopeful faith that knows that when Jesus will vindicate all my suffering when he comes to judge the world. And so if we live holy and well in the midst of that suffering with hopeful faith, we transcend to where we are finally living everyday life for the glory of God. And in summarizing, I want to say again that we don't suffer like the original church. We're not being beheaded for our faith. But on the other hand, 
There is no amount of public relations effort that's going to change society's ever-increasing opinion that the church is filled with bigoted people who are bigoted and backward against gays. There's nothing we can do that is going to smooth society's opinion of anybody who thinks that, including us. Now, I get that all Christians may have grown up and seen some people being mean and counteracting that, and everybody who's young today wants us all to be nice, and I get that, and you have a point. I, I get that because nobody is actually ever one to the Christian faith because you're uglier than they were. You know, nobody's ever won because you were uglier back at them than they were to you. I get that. But each of us, young or old, needs to understand one thing. If you hold a biblical view of gender and sexuality, if you hold a biblical view of marriage and family, you can't out-nice the coming condemnation that is coming your way from society. Be nice because you're holy. I think it's the better way. I believe Jesus was that way to sinners. But I want you to make no mistake about something. Following Jesus means you have a cross to bear. Be as nice as you want, but you still have a cross to bear. Following Jesus means this. You are going to have to choose truth that society around you hates. That's the cross you'll bear. Following Jesus means you have to choose a way of life that sooner or later will cost you and make you suffer. Just, Peter says, just be sure that you suffer for belonging to Jesus, not because you're a jerk. Okay? Just, because you just be sure you suffer for the right reason. And suffer knowing that when, whenever you suffer for Jesus, those outside the gospel will suffer immeasurably more because of all the suffering they cause, now is leading to a day of reckoning later. Rejoice, knowing that your Savior suffered, and your suffering is meant to draw you to him and make you like him. And endure, rejoice and endure by taking your eyes off yourself, turning your eyes upon Jesus to behold the glory of God. I pray that each one of us will walk out today with a personal resolution to live a life of good works as an expression of our faith in Jesus. But what we need to do now is pray for God's grace to live holy lives together in support of one another as brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, enduring our sufferings for the glory of God and to the praise of his name forever. Let's pray. Father. Not a fun passage for us, not one that we take lightly, not especially this talk about judgment beginning in the household of God, not particularly encouraging, but yet God, it should be, because it is rich and deep in the truth of your glory. It is rich and deep in the gospel. What you're calling to do is to live a life of genuine faith that brings you glory. What you are calling to do is to live a life of faith that endures till the very end, no matter whether we suffer even unto death. For Jesus suffered unto death, even the death of the cross. 
And Lord, one day, every knee will be made to bow of things in heaven and things in the earth and things under the earth. And every tongue will be made to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God our Father. Lord, we have the privilege of doing that now. But even if we resolve to live for your glory, we can't do it in our own strength. This is not a New Year's resolution that somebody can make. This is something we can only do as your grace is operative in us, as your spirit causes us to understand the deep truth, and as your spirit empowers us to live the deep truths. And so, God, I pray for, each, for me, for each one of us in here, that we will truly get how serious you are about living a life that brings you the glory that you deserve because you saved us. So, Lord, I think of those who are suffering right now, many in here. Pray that you will strengthen them by bringing them together with others in prayer, by surrendering their suffering to your glory. And in that, grant them the freedom from fear that you promise and grant them in its place a life of hopeful faith that whether they live or die, they are the Lord's. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.